Okay, welcome to the Defen episode number 32. This is Vijay from Holland. Hi, it's Ryan Belgium. And Conrad from uh, Chicago. The Windy City. Yep, it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh we are very excited to have you Conrad finally on the episode. I think we've been uh, there there've been some uncertainty whether we're going to record it today or not because of us, but uh I'm glad we made it. Um so let's get started. I'm sure there will be uh, of course we are, we are live streaming this episode just like uh, the previous two episodes. So if we have any questions from people who are watching around the world, we'll pick we'll pick them up uh, somewhere around the end of the episode. Um so first of all, uh, welcome to Defen. Um so did you hear any of our uh, episodes or what do you think of this podcast? Uh so first of all, advertisement for Defen. Yeah, so I've been <laughs> listening to it for a while. Uh, I'm a big podcast listener. uh i uh, i i spend so much time in front of a monitor uh and since i'm sort of a uh like i said data for uh you know somebody who likes information uh 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 there's only you know since i spend all my time programming in front of a monitor uh i consume most of my reading material and and uh news uh by podcast or by audible and those kinds of things when i can so so yeah so i've been listening to you guys for a while uh and you know i've been really impressed uh by the the caliber of the guests uh so so the quality is really high it'll it's kind of uh uh it'll be tough to follow and uh yeah <laughs> i thought the, the the overall structure and the kinds of questions were really uh well uh done so yeah so i'm a, i'm a big fan of defen wow fantastic <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever been you know crazy enough to admit that before conrad so it's appreciated Exactly. I think we're going to quote you on our website and everything and then we put we put the gif of you everywhere and then we say he said we're good. So <laughs> um okay, so let's do a quick uh, round of um, introduction. Of course, I mean most most of the people already know about you, you know, because you wrote this uh, Lispy book a long time ago, Land of Lisp, and uh, um you did a lot of work with Clojure as well, starting from WebFuy and different things. So we we talk about all those things. So how did you get into Lisp? Um well, so I I been for a long time a uh, like kind of a low level C and assembly language programmer so i i uh, a long time ago in uh, undergrad i i worked for a contractor that was building atari video games so if you guys uh, remember the ill-fated uh, atari um, uh, jaguar console so i was lead developer on a game for that a long long time ago uh, and that was right. lots of very ugly assembly language um <laughs> and uh so so that's that was kind of my background and of course um uh you know i i always kind of been interested in like kind of the the tooling and like figuring out like you know what is the right way to write a computer program and those kinds of things and so so i so i uh so i did a lot of stuff in c and uh c++ and kind of went down that rabbit hole and then quickly um uh, uh started realizing hmm this language doesn't really do what i want so i guess i'm going to have to start writing some kind of preprocessors to um uh so that I can like you use this tool the way I want to and so I kind of went down that road and then uh uh I was listening to a uh uh an interview with Bjorn Sturstrup I probably uh, totally butchered his name but um he uh, <laughs> It's okay he they, doesn't listen to this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> and so they they asked him like what um you know what uh, if we want to see what the new ideas are going to be in C++ moving forward you know where should we look and he said well look at what the functional programming people are doing and that was really the yeah. first time i heard that term that was uh, quite a while ago and uh and it's like okay so what's this and then i uh then i first uh you know when you if you look up functional programming pretty much the the first thing that will come up is like haskell and that type of stuff so i got i went down that rabbit hole for a while and uh um 
and 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 those are really cool languages. Um, and then I guess uh, uh, sometime around that time, I also started uh, reading the Paul Graham essays, uh, where he yeah. was speaking very highly of Lisp, and uh, and that and then I kind of realized, yeah, I kind of like this um, these languages that kind of make it easier to do prototyping, where you can just kind of uh, just kind of you know start. Uh, building stuff, and you don't have to worry about uh, the, uh, what your uh, type signatures are and all that. And so, uh, so, and, and then of course, what's awesome about Lisp is that it it sort of fulfilled my old dream, where it's like, oh, now I don't have to write a preprocessor; I can just write macros. And so I went mm -hmm. macro crazy, like every early Lisper. <laughs> and now, nowadays, it's like you know, once uh, every six months, I write a macro because you learn. The more you do it, the more you realize you shouldn't be using macros for everything. Um, and uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I got down that rabbit hole. And uh, and I mean, I think the the you know what uh, sort of distinguishes me because I have kind of a different background, uh, both uh, uh, you know because I, I went into medicine and also just because I came out of a, a part of the country that wasn't really very uh, um, uh, sort of a, a tech area. I came out of um, uh, South Florida, and um, uh, so and and before the internet, uh, it was really hard to get. Um, Sort of good uh, computer science information. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, there wasn't. Uh, so if you, if you wanted to be an autodidact, and which I was, because I wasn't getting a computer science degree, uh, there wasn't a lot of information. So I kind of got into all of this sort of the computer science side of computer programming uh, rather late, and mm -hmm. I think that gave me kind of a unique perspective in that I could, um, uh, you know, maybe explain some of these concepts more easily to beginners uh, because yeah. I. Um, because uh, I was also kind of a beginner that had just kind of picked this up and was really excited about it. And so I think mm -hmm. that's why, like, the early uh, uh, web uh, uh, tutorials I did around Lisp programming, like the, the you know, the most well-known one is called called Casting Spells. I think that's yeah, kind of why it was, list, yeah. why uh, it, it hit a chord is just because um, it was, uh, it, it got people excited and it could explain uh, kind of in a very basic uh, way why these things are kind of interesting to somebody who, it hasn't, you know, hasn't hasn't done macros and hasn't dealt with homo iconic languages and that kind of stuff. Mm. So, but as a, as a as a person who is, um, as you said, you're kind of an outsider for uh, for computer sciencey stuff. And um, so, how did you feel between um, Haskell and Clojure? I mean, you 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 went into different sorts of languages. So, and without without any computer science education, because if you if you get computer science education, then you start with I don't know types and type theory, and if you go into that direction. Then suddenly things are a bit different than uh, coming to the real world programming, so to speak. Yeah, it's really weird, and and I'm still kind of ambivalent about this whole, uh, you know, the whole argument about static typing because part of me really feels like if I was just kind of smart enough that, um, and I spent enough time uh, using Haskell and OCaml and all the ML languages, that like that might be like the most effective way to write uh, robust computer software. Um, yeah. But like uh, you know, I, I have to live in the real world, and the the, the fact is that I, I can just write a lot more code uh, in a dynamic language like Clojure. Um, yeah. So 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 I don't know how how to explain that difference. The difference could be that um, like maybe if I just if I put in like just another year of uh, of Haskell under my belt, then um, then I would be just as good in Haskell. Uh, uh, mm -hmm. Or it could be that um, the the idea of uh, having to to, to think really deeply about types uh, at, at the beginning as you're developing uh, software, that that yeah. maybe isn't like an optimal way to, to develop software. I, I really don't know what the answer is. 
Um, clearly, okay. in, in the closure community, there's sort of this this view that uh, uh, you know people have had recently, where they've kind of said, well, you know, maybe this uh, uh, being so heavily statically typed um, might not be the best thing ever. Maybe there there's actual tangible benefits to um, to to not going down that 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 in that direction because it although it does give you certain uh, uh, guarantees. Uh, the, the guarantees are, are still limited. Um, uh, ty types are not a silver bullet. And so, um, yeah, so, so there's trade-offs and it's really hard to judge uh, what the right answer yeah. is there. I mean, I think I, think I would recommend for anybody uh, who's a serious programmer to learn both uh, a statically mm. typed language and uh, a Lisp language. Yeah. Um, going back to your, when you started to learn Lisp, did you, because you said you worked on games, did you look at look uh, implementing some games in in Lisp, or was it, were you just looking at something completely different by that stage? Uh, so that's a good question. So I mean, the casting spells in Lisp uh, that I did was a, a game, um, uh, a text game, because I, I kind of I liked it. I, I was kind of intrigued by how a REPL is so similar to something like Zork, and right. it kind of yeah, seemed right. like yeah. the yeah, natural yeah. way to um, <laughs> to do like a tutorial. Um, and uh, uh, and and yeah, I mean, I'm you know, I was a, a kid, uh, uh, you know, when I was when it was uh, the early '80s. Uh, you know, I would pick up the you know those books like 110 uh, basic mm. computer games, and I would uh, all, type them all into my Commodore 64. And uh, uh, so I just I really like that idea that you 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 uh, there's there's something about games that lets you um, uh, take like abstract concepts and very quickly. Uh, build something tangible that that has some kind of utility, and it's a it's just a great way of learning. And so, so the the land of list book is uh, basically the, the the design of it is that every chapter has a game in it, and and yeah. the hard part with the book was is that every game uh, could only use concepts that were covered in previous chapters with previous games, and so it was very difficult figuring out the right ordering of the games and, right. and features in the games to make that work. So. Yeah. And how did you but, find that from a kind of like, let's say, I mean, from an experiential perspective, I guess it was pretty good. Otherwise, you would have given up. But how did you find it when you were like comparing it for people always say, oh, you can't write games in this stuff because it's too slow and it's too, you know, it's too difficult to kind of make a performance when you compare it with, you know, Assembler or C or even the even JavaScript or Go these days. I don't know. But certainly, like you know, Objective C or or C plus plus, people are writing all their games in that. So, do you feel like there's a subset of games that could be written in in a Lisp, or or is it just kind of like purely as a toy? Uh, well, I kind of think that the things that I find interesting and compelling about games, like I was a big fan of the uh, Ultima series, uh, has very little to do with graphics and. Uh, mm. Um, the uh, the performance you need to, to do interesting things in games in terms of storytelling and stuff is uh, not uh, it's not a very high bar and, and certainly uh, with a modern Lisp uh, you can you can you know you can do pr actually pretty high performance stuff if you if you want to um, I mean it's always a tough question exactly uh, you know around uh, uh, how you know how wh what role does optimization play in, uh, uh, in in any sort of software that you develop. Yeah. And uh, yeah. and I'm certainly somebody of the view that um, like I I like thinking about new ideas and and I'm just somebody who likes uh, building things and for the most part that means that I 
pay very little attention to performance or optimization because that just gets in the way of trying out new ideas. Um, so, yeah, and, and, and yeah, and when we talk <laughs> about uh, development uh, frameworks, uh, you know, that, that that attitude will come into play, I think. Yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. I totally agree with that. I mean, uh, well, I think it's a, it's a trope, isn't it, that you should get everything correct and right and happy first and then find out where the performance issues are and deal with that later. And, and even if you have to throw it all away, um, you've still got the thing that you want right. Yeah, yeah, I, th I think there's a definite case for um, writing software in Lisp, like if you're talking about high performance stuff, like, you know, code for some embedded system, like the way I would probably go about that if I, if I had that job is I would write it in something like uh, a closure with the expectation that the code would be thrown away. But after I got yeah. everything working in closure, then I would sit down and figure out, okay, what are the types? And then I would use some uh, very performant uh, statically typed language to, to, to write all the types out and then code mm -hmm. the rest of the system and uh, and then use that. So, but certainly for that early exploratory phase, uh, uh, closure seems to be kind of a local maxima. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it, and it'll be, be interesting to see because it could totally be that five years down the road, there'll be, I mean, I think there's starting to be room for new programming languages now. So we see if yeah. we'll see if there's another Rich Hickey five years from now that comes up with something <laughs> even cooler. Uh, but but so far, yeah. uh, closure uh, seems to be pretty ideal. I think the other thing I'd be interested because I'm doing some IoT stuff as well at the moment, and I've seen some videos of people doing Lisps for embedded systems. You know, sort of mini versions of Lisp that can run everything in a word. You know, and they they can do all kinds of optimizations. Um, so maybe it's this Lisp machine, maybe it's the IoT will be the place where we start to get the Lisp machine coming through again, because people want to be able to code in a in a Lispy way. I mean, having, having a REPL on the IoT would be superb, I think. You know, at the moment, I'm writing all of it in C and waiting for a long, long loop around before you can get any, any, any work done on these things. Yeah, and I think later on when we get into the discussion where we start talking about blockchain and smart contracts, that same issue comes yes. into play because uh, with these systems where, where, where you want other people to validate your computations, uh, uh, performance uh, and optimizations uh, are very important. Yeah. But did, did you so you started with uh, programming as a I'm assuming as a hobby, not not like really you know as as a study because you know doing medicine must be pretty exhausting and time consuming. Uh, yeah. doing that education, and and then um, you moved into uh, obviously learning all these languages, and now these days you're working on the blockchain stuff. We'll get to that point. Mm -hmm. But how did you how did you manage to do the programming stuff? Did you work commercially with uh, I mean building software for somebody or well, I mean, uh, you know, I'm I'm uh, an older developer now uh, in my <laughs> mid 40s. So, uh, you know, I come back from the era where uh, you didn't really need a computer science degree to work at a software company. And yeah, I think uh, even now it's more or less that is the case. I mean, yeah. if you know JavaScript, then you're a software developer. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. it's uh, it, the degree is more helpful now, but uh, you know, back exactly. then, basically yeah. nobody cared. Um, yeah. And I and I just realized, like, uh, you know, like like. The, the guy that we've hired for our company, uh, you know, that's been working for us for a long time. I, at some point I realized, hey, I, I don't know anything about you. Did, did you get a computer science degree? Did you graduate high school? Because it doesn't <laughs> matter because like I know, you know, I knew his work. So that was completely yeah. irrelevant. I, it, it never occurred to me to ask him any questions like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And and then uh, you started now. Uh, so do you practice medicine or, or do you are you fully focused on your uh, company right now? 
No, I have, I basically got my medical degree, uh, and okay. I kind of in in um, uh, while I was at medical school, kind of decided that that was uh, probably not the right career choice for me. Uh, I think just temperamentally, I'm I'm not very good with uh, just rote memorization, and I'm not very good um, <laughs> with sort of quick in the moment moment decision making, which is a big part of of that job. Uh, I'm somebody who likes to you know sleep o- uh, uh, over things, and then like uh, I make good decisions the next day. Um, yeah. so, uh, so, so like computer science is, is like more up my alley, uh, yeah. but it doesn't matter if you have a, if you have a medical degree and, uh, you, um, you can... uh, have a computer science background, you know, uh, and this was like, uh, right before the dot-com bubble when I, when yeah. I started going into, uh, uh, working for medical enterprise, uh, co- companies, yeah. um, like there was just, uh, easy demand, like, you know, people were interested in hiring you. So, uh, mm. um, you know, and, uh, you know, computer software m- makes a pretty decent salary too compared to what a, uh, a, a resident doctor makes. So, you know, I, I could pay my loans back and everything in the same way, pretty much. So, yeah. So you, you transitioned from Haskell to Lisp, obviously, I mean, you wrote Land of Lisp, which is super fun book and, and, uh, you know, with all the fancy Lispy alien stuff and everything, it's um, amazing to read and really fun. And then, uh, you did a bit of a racket as well. Um, yeah, I played around with all mm-hmm. the different lists at, at one point or another. Um, and uh, uh, and in fact, when I uh, was approached by No Starch Press about doing Land of Lists, so, so they had seen my online tutorials and thought I, I, I might be a good person for a book, uh, I told mm-hmm. them, you know, there's this new language called Clojure that looks kind of interesting. And and uh, and we, we all decided, well, it's probably a little too early to write a Clojure book. So that's why I wrote <laughs> Land of Lists. But like, if it had been like another six months later, it might have been country of closure. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. I mean, you, you always pick these words with some sort of a, you know, a rhythm in it. I mean, Bitcoin for the befuddled and realm of racket and <laughs> land of lisp. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why. I guess uh, it, it, it just, uh, I like titles that roll easy off of the tongue. So <laughs> it. It's it's very easy to remember, right? I mean, if you say, "Oh, which closure book was that?" You know, it's much easier to remember which list book was that because I have I have I've read enough um, enough of list books, and I think the only book name that I can completely remember is LOL, Let Over Lambda. Mm-hmm. That's like a really mental gymnastics with macros. I mean, mm-hmm. by half of the time I, I read it and then I go reread it again, and then I'm like, okay, I I, I don't understand anything anymore. Yeah, so it's yeah. a wonderful book. Yeah, yeah, it is a great book. <laughs> yeah, great book that you don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> most re- most most religious books are like that, aren't they? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the the thing that you don't understand is above your. Then then you suddenly start to revere it with some level of um, I don't know uh, admiration, and then uh, so it's a life of a, a work, a whole life's work of study. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so why? Because you started doing the blockchain stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, before we get into blockchain, I'd like to, I think, uh, let's discuss a bit more about, I, I remember watching the video uh, from, was it Closure Conch? Uh, because you presented WebFui. Yeah. Uh, what what was the background for that one? Yeah, so so this was just um, me. Uh, so so at my day job at, in, in medical enterprise software, very, very conservative <laughs> uh, uh, field uh, that, you know, that it was all about ASP.NET. Uh, and so I was doing a lot of C-sharp programming and uh, um, uh, and and we were doing um, you know we were just starting up uh, JavaScript development and uh, um, uh, but but yeah I just kind of realized that um, uh, you know I'm a functional programmer 
uh, I, I want to write functions that say that output as a result what I want to see on the screen. And um, and I had heard I, there's a thing, what is it called, McClim? It's a, a, a thing from uh, the common list world. And they started playing around with some of those kinds of ideas. But for the most part, just the, at that time, the concept that you would um, have an app that just uh, is a function where you stick in what you what you uh, the the information about the app, and then it spits out uh, what you want to see on the screen. Like that mm. that hadn't really existed uh, in like a, a major way at that point. And so and so I just you know I just basically what I did is I just wrote a function that would just um, spit out HTML, and then I okay. would just say uh, in JavaScript you know. Uh, like window.html or for inner HTML or whatever it is. And then I just say mm -hmm. equals to this uh, big thing. And then you can write an app that way. It just, uh, you know, you just, uh, it just kind of spits out um, the, uh, the HTML for the page. Uh, and then of course, the, the next thing you, you start thinking about is um, uh, what, um, what, what should be the correct way to, uh, to have uh, some sort of modularity and some kind of, um, uh, composability, and that's where I, th I I I kind of got it wrong because I thought, well, I, I basically I want this function that just dumps out HTML, and then if we want to um, like break up the screen into different components, the way I would handle that is by just having more functions, one for each yeah. component, uh, and I didn't mm -hmm. have the the actual concept of a uh, of a real sort of component uh, design, um, which uh, with the idea being that each component has kind of its own needs in terms of, um, uh, you know, its own state and uh, and sort of its li a life cycle where it can be mounted and unmounted and stuff like that. And so, uh, well, anyway, so I built I built this web fooey thing and uh, um, uh, and it was surprisingly hard to kind of figure out how to uh, do this low level manipulation of the DOM. And and anyway, at some point I optimized it. You know, the next obvious step is, yeah. oh, you know, we, if we have a copy of the old HTML and we have the new HTML, you know, both of course in a, an Eden format, closure Eden format, yeah. then we can do a delta. And so instead of replacing the whole screen, we can just replace little pieces uh, uh, based on that. And so, and then now you've gone to the, got, gone to the point where you're building your own virtual DOM engine. And uh, yeah. yeah, it was it was there was like no resources on this. No, nobody really had done it before, or at least not publicly. Um, mm. And uh, yeah, and so that's what I present, presented at uh, that, that closure conj. Uh, and uh, and then a couple of months later, uh, Facebook released React. And then I and then when I saw that, and the thing is, like, I didn't really want the job of developing my own web framework. It's just like, <laughs> hey, uh, the web frameworks like don't work the way I want to. Like, I want. To, to work in a way that I want to work. And so yeah. the only option there was to build my own. And then as soon as React came out, I was like, thank God, because like my framework <laughs> was kind of uh, not uh, a really solid implementation. It was very rough because it was just something I was doing in my free time. And so, yeah. and then I, I like went straight to the React forum and it's like, you, you know, you guys, you, you guys have totally the right idea. This is fantastic. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, I, I was working on the same idea, but, it, but I don't care because like, you know, it, it's great that these good ideas are being implemented. Um, yeah. and, uh, and so I was like a big champion on, on day one when React came out. And if you looked at the Hacker News story when React came out, everybody was like, well, this is just the dumbest thing ever. You're mixing <laughs> your CSS and your HTML directly with the JavaScript. Like that, yeah. like what kind of idiot would do that? <laughs> and uh, and that, that's how React was for like the first six months. Uh, everyone yeah. hated it, 
and and then somehow people started realizing uh, the benefits of this approach. Um, so, yeah. So, so you started from WebFui, and then uh, you obviously React people stole your idea, and then somehow made it more popular. That's pretty good for all of us. Then, um, <laughs> yeah. I, I should and, point out they were working at, at it for like a, even a year before that. No, so don't that, do that. Don't, don't point that out. You have been thinking about it for years before you started on it. So come on. Exactly, they they stole idea. Anyway, we're gonna we're gonna spread this thing around. Anyway, but you get of course. I mean, it's a very exciting idea, and then. Um, there have been a lot of uh, frameworks in Clojure which adopted React and then they they build different things. Then how did you, because you recently announced QLKit. Mm -hmm. So why QLKit? Uh, when when we have Reframe, when we have Omnext, when we have Fulcrow, uh, I don't know, uh, RUM, Quescient, whatever. Th there are millions of things these days. Yes. So, um, so I really... Um, uh, I mean, the big problem you run into, I mean, there's two big problems. Okay, so you figured out finally how to uh, handle the information on the screen. React solves that beautifully. Uh, the, the two big problems you have to deal with next is that um, there is not a one-to-one -one mapping between your client application state and your UI. So there, so basically, yeah. you know, it, uh, the I guess the term would be it's a DAG. The, uh, yeah, yeah, there's, yeah. You know, if you have uh, friends, um, you may have one. Let, let, you're building a Facebook app, and you have friends. Then there might be one place where you where you see a list of your friends, and then in a completely different part of the UI, it'll say you have ten friends. And yeah. uh, and if you unfriend somebody on this side, it has to update that count mm -hmm. on the other side, and you have to manage that in your application state. And so mm -hmm. now you have this problem where you have different parts of the UI that need to share the same backend data. So how mm -hmm. do you solve that? So WebFui totally didn't address that question, um, uh, and um, uh, and the first uh, and, and and even things like uh, the early React and and uh, 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 some of the early uh, frameworks uh, in Clojure didn't yeah. really address that. The first mm -hmm. one that I really saw that addressed that was uh, Ohm, the oh, first yeah. version of Ohm. And so yeah. what what he what uh, David Nolan did there is he uh, he had this concept of a cursor. Which was uh, kind of a complex. Uh, yeah, I won't get into it because he's he's already moved uh, beyond that. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. Anymore. Yeah, but it's kind of like a fancier version of a zipper, and yeah. uh, and it basically kind of keeps track when you're inside, deeply inside of a component, how that maps onto something uh, in in terms of the the global uh, application state that you're managing, and. Um, and so, so that was really appealing to me. But you and and then uh, uh, I I really got into Ohm and. Um, uh, I uh, and and that that was like the one that spoke to me because it 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 like solved the next big problem, which is how do we ha uh, map the client application state to the UI, and um, uh, but then of course uh, you you start messing with cursors and this cursor concept, and you eventually you you run into edge cases where cursors just don't work, and uh, uh, and uh, where where there's complicated enough relationships that you just can't use cursors for it, and then of course if you look up. Uh, the 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 fact on Ohm at the time, uh, you know, David Nolan would said, well, he, he said, well, you you should use channels, you should use yeah, yeah. channels between things, and that yeah. way you can kind of have things kind of talk to each other, sort of out of band and and things like that. But then it's yeah. like, well, now it's starting to kind of look a little bit like spaghetti, um, mm. and uh, and so and then uh, and you know and and that's why uh, Ohm uh, was then superseded by Ohm Next. Yeah. Uh, and then I, I got totally obsessed with Ohm Next. And the idea with Ohm Next was, um, well, well, here's the thing. I, you know, I don't. It's really hard for me to really 
understand what like the the underlying abstraction with Omnex was like. Well, well, what, what were the priorities that that David had in mind? Uh, all mm -hmm. I can speak to is when when I studied it, like the features that I saw, and, and and some of the features really spoke to me, and other ones not so much. And uh, and and you know, as we discussed earlier around optimization, uh, Omnex yeah. um, uh, went through gr to great lengths uh, for uh, to to offer really a really compelling uh, optimization story. Um, uh, uh, at, at, and and uh, and there was some costs with that naturally. One being that the code base is complicated, um, mm. and another one is that that there's again some edge cases where uh, uh, Omnex uh, is can can be difficult to use, where you have to kind of look under the cover, specifically mm. around the issue of um, when parents pass uh, parent components pass information to child components. Uh, Omnex breaks that into two categories. One category mm. is um, things that relate to the the uh, the application state and the queries that the child components have, and then separately, uh, if if the parent just wants to send like some kind of message or just give an extra property to a child, um, it kind of handles that differently. So 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 uh, I, I'm not sure how well I'm explaining that, but basically, yeah, yeah. Uh, when when a parent component in Omnex passes data to a child, there's like mm -hmm. two different ways to do it. You do it either either as props. Which is kind of the React yeah, yeah. method, but then they have this other thing called computed props, mm -hmm. and uh, and and there and when you mess around with that stuff enough, eventually, um, like you again, kind of have to look under the cover. Uh, mm -hmm. And so so anyway, so so Omnex is really great, um, mm -hmm. uh, but uh, uh, again, me kind of being an, an outsider, um, uh, it seemed like there might be some value that I could add by just. Um, Sort of translating what I view as the the really great ideas behind Omnex into like a different framework. Um, so that's yeah. kind of what I've I've done. So so that uh, QLK really doesn't have a lot of new ideas. There's maybe a couple, but um, the the I mean, I guess I kind of think of it this way: like um, you know, why is the English language like one of the easiest languages to learn and, and uh, mm -hmm. uh, for for beginners? And the answer is uh, or People speculate, linguists speculate, that it was all the uh, the invaders from uh, the Vikings from Scandinavia uh, that came to uh, uh, England and Britain, and they had to learn the, the language as adults, and they yeah. intermarried with the locals. And because of that, uh, uh, the the language greatly simplified during the the, the Viking invasions in in Britain, mm -hmm. uh, because you're you're basically taking these very complicated ideas. And and you're taking people that are novices, and they and they have to kind of reconceptualize these ideas in a different way. And there's a benefit in that. Um, mm. So are you saying that the whole of the Brits were all dumbed down, basically? And that that's, that's, the, that's <laughs> well, the, the language yeah. was, and it's yeah. everybody's okay. benefit. It's part of the reason. Uh, He's only talking about the language, not the Brits themselves. <laughs> well, I don't know. I think Brexit shows that the people were affected also. But okay, carry on. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Right. I interrupted you. So we, we're talking back to QL Kid. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So so that's essentially what what I did is I just I looked at mm -hmm. Omnext and there's so many awesome ideas in there. Yeah. And I just said let's like if I didn't have Omnext but I knew all these yeah. great ideas what what would it look like and that's what QL Kid. I is. think that that was most of the. Of course, I'm I'm also not not, not an expert or anything. Obviously, um, the. Um, 
idea behind om and om next has always been at least that's what i heard from david speaking at the conference is that you know this is this is this is an idea exploration and then you can build on top of it yeah, so exactly. this is this is not the final final framework that i'm bringing and then you should just use this yeah. one mm-hmm. yeah uh, these are the ideas that you can start and then build on those things so right. i think um, om next was also kind of the similar yeah it's almost a set of principles you know that the client should be able to express their desire in some kind of uh data type language to the server and it should get exactly and only what it needs back i mean these are the kind of core principles yeah mm-hmm. yeah so so i mean david nolan he said very clearly that he also that he, yeah he he basically just wants to share ideas and that's mm, what yeah. what his goals are and he's happy exactly. and it sounds like he's happy when people take his ideas in other directions um but why why not why not fulcro because fulcro uh, of course i mean i i read your medium blog post and i'm i'm sorry i didn't try out the whole uh, ql kit yet uh, i will certainly uh, next week next weekend um so you have fulcro and then fulcro we had tony k as well on on mm-hmm. the on on uh, defen i'm not sure if you have heard uh, the episode um so he was also doing similar kind of thing like bringing home next to the to to people like me you know yeah. <laughs> uh so what wh- wh- did you did you look into that uh, framework or any good things yeah. that you pick up from there or yeah and 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 i i definitely owe some gratitude to tony k because uh, uh i use a lot of his tutorials for understanding om next mm-hmm. and and um, om next does have a a pr- pretty high learning curve mm-hmm. um and uh you know tony k did, did did a lot of work to help alleviate that um uh so so yeah i mean the the idea beh- behind what tony k was doing is uh well i don't you know i don't want to speak for him but it seems like his goals were to to um to add features to uh, Omnext, uh, and also to um, to, to apply some um, uh, opinions to Omnext. So basically, he said, you know, Omnext. Oh, if you know, back when uh, David was starting Omnext, you know, and you would ask him, "Hey, uh, David, how how in, in your opinion, how is somebody supposed to do uh, you know this particular thing in Omnext?" And then his answer usually would be something along the lines of, uh, "That's the beauty of it. You can do it any way you want to." Which, of course, you don't want to hear. You want uh, own, uh, <laughs> David to just tell you the right way to to solve the problem, right? So, uh, so that's kind of what Tony did. He said, "Okay, yeah, let's 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 not do that. Let's have a lang- uh, a version of own next where it tells you like uh, at least a default way to do things." And um, uh, and now and now, of course, uh, 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 Tony has gone in another direction, which is that he's, uh, from what I understand, is pretty much uh, uh, duplicating the code base from Omnext. He's like forking Omnext to to be more yeah, appropriate yeah. for Fulcrum. So they're starting to deviate more. Um, yeah. So so my idea was was mainly that um, uh, what really got me is just the the complexity of the code base uh, of Omnext, and I think the reason it's complicated is again number one because the flexibility that David wanted, and also these optimizations. Um, so, uh, so, so if you use QLKit, the only kind of optimization you get is the 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 the, the basic React optimizations that React does, and, mm-hmm. and, and but it doesn't go beyond that. Whereas uh, Omnext like takes it to a whole nother level of optimization. Um, uh, but there's a you know again some costs in terms of uh, the the complexity of the code base. So I just wanted I, I was just wondering, well, what if, if we didn't have that? Uh, wh- what would the performance be like, and mm. how how simple can we make the code? And so that's yeah. kind of what I I uh, did. And and I, I think you know there's a couple of other things that that where I I um, kind of differ with QLKit from Omnext. So I mean a lot of the syntax and stuff is different. I mean there are some yeah. some different views of it. Uh, I mean what what I really liked about 
uh, Ohm Next that I thought was a really brilliant idea was that when when a component a component basically declares the data that it needs in in a in a query as part of the component declaration, and this is usually done at um, this is a static query. So basically, you say that uh, uh, you know when you uh, write the code, you say this is the mm -hmm. data it's going to need, and um, uh, what's really uh, great about that is um, that uh, the first thing you do when in Ohm Next after you you have these uh, queries and 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 it, and they all get kind of composed based on the component ordering uh, is you basically just immediately throw them away because you you pass them to a parser and uh, and and then then you have the separate thing uh, uh, called these parser functions that parse the query and. Yeah. Uh, and then after, uh, and then they basically. So basically, what you're doing is you're you're creating your own language for describing the data needs for all your components, and then you immediately throw that away by um, giving it to a parser that uh, fulfills that. So it's like you're you're kind of writing your own language just for yourself, and it, and and the the query language basically just lives in the confines of your program, and uh, it's more of a uh, uh, in a way kind of an organizational. Tool for the structure of the program, but it's not meant to really be used in the outside world. And uh, in some ways, Omnext differs from that. First of mm -hmm. all, the uh, Omnext query syntax was built off of the um, uh, the, the atomic pull syntax. Yeah. Um, so that was um, uh, because of that. It 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 was designed to be more uh, something that you could send to outside entities like the atomic, um, mm -hmm. uh, and and that introduced some complexity. Um, mm -hmm. And then also um, there's this view uh, uh, in Ohm Next where um, uh, maybe uh, you can make the query, maybe the query language should be richer and have more features so that you don't have to write parsers that are as complicated. So they have these things called links, which is a way to, uh, to connect queries together in a, in a certain way. And they have parameterized yeah. queries where you can uh, basically change a query at runtime uh, so, so you can either just change the parameters of a query, or even replace the entire query itself uh, at mm -hmm. runtime. Um, and uh, um, and so, to me, those actually, I, I didn't find those ideas very good because I like the mm -hmm. fact that the query never changes, mm -hmm. and I like the fact that um, uh, the if we can make the query language really, really simple, since the whole job of the query language is for our own use to parse it. Yeah. Uh, we want to keep the language simple, and so if you read about the the old next query syntax, uh, depending on whether you have parameters or not, you like the the uh, the way the query is structured changes pretty diff radically, and and so so there's actually a separate parsing mechanism where they take the uh, the old next query and then parse it into an AST query. So they have two mm -hmm. different query formats. Whereas with QLKit, I I just I severely restrict what you can do in a query in terms of the yeah. the, the, the syntax. And then, I, and then you use that in your parsers uh, uh, directly, um, yeah. uh, so that uh, we reduce that extra step. Uh, but then, but then, of course, the, the very first question when I posted it online was, um, like, if I can't uh, have a dynamic, if I can't have dynamic parameters in a uh, component, like, how would I do certain basic things, like just having a search field? Because in a search field, the idea is you have a component, it has a query saying, you know, I'm looking for. Uh, uh, Let's say a, a person with this name is, is the query, and then as people start typing into the search field, you want to change what that name is and what what is being uh, queried from the server, um, yeah. and uh, uh, and and so that uh, so they ask, well, if I can't change what the query is, 
and I don't have uh, uh, QL code has parameters, but you just can't set them on a component at runtime. Um, then how do I do that? Um, and uh, 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 and and you know, and, and if you read my fact, there's very straightforward mm -hmm. ways of doing it. What you have to do is you you lift the concern of um, the uh, what the uh, the query is, uh, you know, what the search term is into the mm -hmm. level of the of the global application state. So basically, what you do is uh, the 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 component has a, a, a query that's static and doesn't. It just says, uh, you know, give me all the the people that match the search term, but it doesn't say what the search yeah. term is. It just says, you yeah. know, th this uh, I want the queries that match the search term, and then the search term itself is in the client application state, mm -hmm. and then um, and then uh, what QLKit offers is additional tools for um, uh, helping to massage queries before they get to the server, and then at that point. Mm -hmm. You you say okay, this in order to answer this question, we can't do that in the client. We have to send it to the server. So now the mm. server is going to have to know what the search term is because uh, it, it doesn't have that information for every client. Um, so now we we will add that as a parameterized query uh, when it gets sent to the server. So so it's it's just a different way of organizing it. But the the goal yeah. is to simplify the query language. Uh, all components have static queries. You can't change them. You have to say what your data needs are uh, at uh, when you write your code. So the QL kit is is built around GraphQL, right? I mean, this is completely yes. driven by GraphQL. So um, it, it's not it's not uh, comparable to other toolkits which are decoupling backend and frontend, uh, like REST APIs or something like that. Well, the the, the idea is that um, uh, so so uh, QL kit uses a graph query language. Yeah. And QLKit is another type of graph query, query language. They, uh, mm -hmm. It's a different, the two have a different syntax. And OMNEXT and the Datomic Pull syntax are also graph yeah. query languages, and it has yeah. its own syntax. And all yeah. graph query languages are basically the same. They're solving the same problem, but yeah. they may have different syntaxes. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, so it's very, it, it's easy to take the, the, the QLKit syntax and, and convert it to GraphQL if that's what you need to do. If you mm -hmm. wanted to, uh, Talk to a, a server uh, 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 with GraphQL, um, okay. but yeah. But the, the basic model is, uh, you know, it's it's we have our own query language. Yeah. You um, uh, 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 when 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 a component asks for data, um, usually that that those data needs are fulfilled through the application uh, state that's in the client browser. Uh, but then there's like this extra stage where. Where you can say no, 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 no. This piece of data we don't have it in the client. We're going to have to ask the server for that. Yeah. And then when we and then and then at that stage you can actually uh, change the query because it might mm -hmm. be that from the context of the of the server it needs to know more about what you're querying because it needs to know maybe who the user is, more yeah. about what the search term was that was. Yeah. You know, there there yeah. may be extra things you have to specify to, to lock down exactly what it is you're querying. So we, okay. we have we have extra uh, parsing functions that let you introduce this extra information before it reaches mm -hmm. the server. And then on the server, uh, uh, just like with OM Next, uh, mm -hmm. we 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 use the we use QLKit too. So yeah. so so the exact same parsing library that you use for parsing reads and mm -hmm. mutations uh, against the your uh, your client state in the browser, you use those that exact same library on the server to to parse uh, the queries. And okay. then uh, when the data comes back, then then there's there's again a, 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 a set of parsing functions you can write that mm -hmm. that synchronize what's coming from the server with uh, what's in the client state. Uh, yeah. And this is again a departure from uh, OMNext because what OMNext mm -hmm. does 
is they have this concept of uh, auto normalization, where mm -hmm. uh, the idea is is that the the process of when when data comes from the server, we're going to incorporate that into the uh, client state um, uh, automatically, and and the programmer mm -hmm. doesn't need to do anything. But because of that, it places certain constraints on the structure of your client states, and mm -hmm. uh, the data that's coming from the server has to be in a very specific format. Um, so, uh, so, so, so uh, QLKit just says, no, no, you, you just have to do it yourself, um, which makes things a lot simpler in some ways, but you have mm -hmm. to write the code saying, okay, here's the data from the server. Now, how do I update my client state to, to match that? Yeah. So how, how much of this QLKit code is in production in, in your, uh, blockchain uh, application? Uh, so or is it still, <laughs> so we, uh, uh, we, I guess we don't really have any production app yet. I mean, mm -hmm. um, you know, we're we're a company in a very uh, sort of early uh, space, and yeah. we're we're just we're spending a lot of time trying to develop core technology. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of um, there's a lot of efficiency gains that are possible uh, by using okay. uh, graph queries, using mm -hmm. uh, closure, using yeah. uh, um, uh, core async is very useful here. Uh, yeah. Those those through th three things, like mm -hmm. nobody in the blockchain or very few people in the blockchain world really understand. How yeah. powerful those things are, yeah. and um, uh, and if you apply those to blockchain tech, there's major efficiency gains. Maybe a quick intro about uh, not not intro, but a quick elevator pitch about what your company is doing. Because some maybe people who are just, can we just track. finish off the QL kit first, just, yeah, just yeah, before yeah. we move on. Just just because mm -hmm. I had a question about where how the server fits into persistent data stores like Datomic or SQL Server or whatever. Um, or Mongo, <laughs> if you really want to go crazy. Yeah. Um, but, you know, so just to finish, just to kind of complete that and, you know, sort of close the circle a little bit, what, what do you do in terms of integration to persistent data stores? Yeah, well, so, so the, uh, again, the, the goal in a way is that um, what you want to do is it, it, when you describe the data needs for your application, you... What you do is you kind of invent your own language, which is yeah. the the query language that that your your uh, particular application has. Uh, so it might you know it might say, oh well, this is a, a an app for uh, keeping track of providers. So we're going to have uh, uh, data. Uh, so you, so in the query you can ask for providers, and then maybe uh, you can say, uh, I want providers that whose name begins with A. You can decide. You can invent your own uh, DSL, basically describing this. And you're you know you're constrained because it has to match the. The, uh, the the underlying uh, syntax of of uh, the QLKit query language, or if you're using Omnext or GraphQL, they have their own syntax. So you have to meet those basic requirements. But then after that, you can basically come up with any uh, format of how you're going to ask for data that you want. And uh, and so with QLKit, um, you have the parsers on the server that will make it very easy to take this uh, this query that's coming from the client. And and part of the goal here, you know, as you touched on earlier. Is that there could be different types of clients. There could be mobile clients, desktop clients, which would have very different types of data needs in terms of uh, how much information they want. And uh, and and with these parsers, you can very easily um, uh, traverse the query and and uh, and generate a result that's uh, optimal for the type of client you're dealing with without having to write multiple backends, which is kind of a popular technique these days. Mm -hmm. And uh, but but essentially, that's where QL could stops. So you. Your uh, what what all the the best QL code will do is it will it, it will give you a very precise language on the server that will tell you what the what data the client wants mm. and if it's doing a mutation 
precisely what that mutation is, and mm -hmm. additionally, uh, what uh, data will be affected as a result of the mutation that needs to be refreshed on the client. So that's all QLkit gives you. And then okay. it's up to you to decide where the actual data lives on on the server, and you can you can you know you can uh, uh, convert it to GraphQL to use one of these GraphQL databases. You can convert it to a datomic pull syntax to uh, to talk to datomic. Uh, you can uh, just use a state atom uh, because uh, it's a simple demo app. Uh, but but it's totally up to you to convert that graph query into uh, uh, something that's meaningful for your your uh, 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 server. So the the goal here is uh, uh, that we're creating our own language. Which, uh, in, in some, for most people, would seem like an insane idea because it sounds like a lot of work uh, yeah. to have your own language for every application you're building. But to a Lisper, uh, they realize that, that 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 that's actually pretty easy. And and uh, and Omnex, I think, uh, to me, what what made what made it compelling is just that it just said, yeah, you know, forget about all these cursors and stuff. That just makes things complicated. Let's just say what everything needs, mm. and then we'll we'll just do the hard work. Of figuring out how to satisfy those needs, both on the client and the server, and guess what? Because it's Lisp, it's actually not hard. So that it's it's just the easiest thing to do anyway. So you're doing a David, are you there? You're just leaving the persistence as an exercise to the reader. <laughs> exactly. So you can do anything you want. On the yeah. Server. Oh God, I want you to tell me the answer, Conrad. <laughs> <laughs> no. Okay. Great. Great stuff. Sorry about. So good. Right. We can move on to the stuff now. Yeah, Thank so, you very much. So, uh, yeah. Quick um, overview about uh, what what you're doing with Forward Blockchain, because I think some of the people might not be familiar with uh, with what you're trying to do. Uh, maybe an elevator pitch about that one, and then the technologies. Then we can talk about uh, blockchain and how Closure is going to help with the blockchain stuff. Yeah. So, um, so what we're doing at Forward Blockchain is uh, uh, pretty basic. I mean, I've I've been part of of the crypto community for uh, for a long, long time. And uh, feel like I, you know, I have a good overview of of all the technology in, in the blockchain space, and uh, um, and and we just simply think that there's there's some kind of intersection. You know, you can have Venn diagrams of like one Venn diagram is blockchain <laughs> tech, and another one is uh, medicine, and somewhere in the middle there, there's something useful there that um, mm -hmm. uh, um, that we feel we're sort of uniquely positioned to add value, um, and uh, and it's still early enough that it's really unclear what that is. Uh, certainly, there's other companies working in this space, and many of them will have very uh, clear uh, uh, plans saying, you know, oh, this, this, you, you should do this, and it's awesome. And, you know, we kind of look at what they're doing, and it's like, well, that, that doesn't really seem that awesome. Uh, it seems like you're basically just uh, making a very complicated traditional database. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, so, uh, uh, so that's kind of where where we're where we're at. So, so the so the, so what we're trying to do is focus first on things on on uh, use cases that are really compatible with uh, blockchain tech. And mm. and since blockchain tech by its nature is very public, um, uh, if, if, if the most valuable types of blockchain technology have are public in nature, because what you're trying to get is this this uh, validation property that a blockchain gives you. And, and your data has to be public to do that. So that means uh, it's useful for public uh, data sets. So these are things like um, uh, provider information, like medical licenses, medical credentials, things yeah. like um, uh, equipment inspections for like radiology equipment, um, things like uh, uh, figuring out the uh, 
uh, uh, the su supply chain issues. Now, um, of course, you know, as we're talking to people, um, uh, you know, the I think there's still a lot of um, thinking in IT that sort of is pre-internet thinking, oh, yeah. and um, uh, and in one way where that's the case is uh, most programmers. Uh, when they learn their craft, they learn the idea that you you collect data somehow, and then and now you have to put that data. Uh, where are you mm -hmm. going to put the data? Well, you're going to put the data in the database, right? And there's like one database, and uh, this database because this was before the internet, so you had like an yeah. intranet, and there was only one database. So where else were you going to put the data, right? And um, and I think that that um, the world now is different and. Uh, basically, there's kind of four types of data now. There's um, mm. there's data, um, there's data that's still the traditional type of data. It, it you collect it, and it's like it has to be kept secret, and uh, um, uh, uh, and and you you want very strict controls about who's allowed to create that, and you and you can just keep that in a traditional database. But then there's other types of data, like uh, um, uh, uh, there's there's data that's sort of communications data. And, yeah. and uh, with communications data, you want to have a very low barrier to entry for people being able to author information. So, you know, you want people to be able to send your employees emails or something. So anyone can author that. But then you need very strict rules for who's allowed to read that data. You want privacy around reading, but you want uh, uh, no security at all around writing or very low security. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the most extreme type of data is stuff that is um, that we want to... Um, uh, uh, everybody to read and everybody to write, you know, and this is kind of where companies are starting to get into social networking and, you know, putting yeah. information open and uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, but then there's sort of this fourth category of data, which is data that is um, uh, where you want very strict controls over who is allowed to write that data, but you yeah. want everybody to be able to read it. So like a medical license would be the perfect example. Uh, yeah. Only like particular employees in, in, the, in, in, in government should be able to update a medical license, but yeah. then once that has happened, you want everybody to be able to see it, and um, and and so so that's kind of those are the use cases that are really um, where blockchain really makes a lot of sense. So mm. essentially, what we want to do is uh, so the first system we, we've built out um, uh, and which we you know we'll, we'll probably make publicly uh, accessible, uh, um, uh, and we kind of we work with the Illinois Department of Professional Regulations to to design the system. So it's a medical license system. Okay. Uh, 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 for uh, for updating medical licenses and keeping track of medical licenses, and it runs on a public blockchain. And um, the uh, uh, you know, and and what we want there is uh, the the fact is we we have an answer now uh, as to what the most secure way is to digitally sign information. Uh, the most secure way to digitally sign information is the uh, the Bitcoin and the uh, Ethereum. Uh, transaction signing mechanism. Why are those the most secure in the world? Because we now have multiple years of, of empirical data that people have stored billions of dollars in Bitcoin and Ethereum accounts, mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and and nobody's been able to hack them at, 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 by uh, uh, using the low-level mechanisms of these systems. So yeah. shouldn't we use those exact same digital signing algorithms to update a medical license? You know, right now, if you were to look at any kind of medical licensing system, the security there is relying on like one ASP.NET programmer mm -hmm. that you you hope is good <laughs> that built the authentication system around that software, right? Uh, yeah. And and, and uh, uh, you know, with our company, we don't want to be security experts because we yeah. we have the world's most secure data structure. 
mm-hmm. which is uh, the the blockchain. And and yeah, so so we're working on that. Another really valuable use case is around um, uh, what a lot of comp- the the problem is that there's so many hospitals in the world. And yeah. these hospitals have a lot of uh, data that's valuable to companies, maybe just in terms of like, you know, who, you know, when people, uh, what's the current uh, a provider list in terms mm. of who's, who, who, who are employees and, um, uh, uh, and, and, and other information about what equipment they have. So there's a lot of data there and, uh, bec- and there's very difficult uh, issues around scalability for yeah. them to be able to, um, to like, there's no incentive for them to provide that data to outside companies, uh, because mm-hmm. uh, uh, a company can't talk to call up every hospital in the country and say, "Hey, uh, we, we're interested in knowing how many of, of uh, these types of radio radiological uh, equipment you have. Uh, can you uh, can we buy that from you?" Like they can't have the yeah, conversation. Yeah. So there has to be some mechanism for mm-hmm. uh, uh, again, not patient data. We're talking just um, uh, sort of facility and employee. Uh, information where where we can um, uh, uh, provide a scalable mechanism for aggregating mm-hmm. that and giving incentives to hospitals to, to provide that data. But where, where does the where does closure and um, t- the the thing that we talked about like closure and then you said closure is one of the probably your secret weapon for conquering blockchain. Uh, yeah. So where, where does closure come into the picture? So how, how do you use closure at uh, for blockchain? Yeah, I mean, at, at the most basic level, um, what uh, so all uh, web apps now are client-server applications, and mm-hmm. um, what's happening now with uh, uh, blockchain is you have these things called uh, DApps. Yeah. These are applications that they they basically have a bundle of HTML and JavaScript, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, that sort of provide the static assets for that application. But then the dynamic assets for that application are directly pulled out of a blockchain by the client without communicating with the server, because that's okay. the goal. The goal is to uh, not have centralized failure points, and you mm-hmm. want uh, your client application to be able to directly communicate with the network. That's how you get the highest security, the highest reliability, and you don't have the, the, the deal with infrastructure uh, for a data center. Um, and uh, the problem there is that uh, programmers, JavaScript programmers, are used to the idea that uh, they own the, the the full stack, including the server, and the uh, the server can massage data in a very specific uh, format that makes the life for the JavaScript in the client as easy as possible. So, mm-hmm. um, uh, uh, and and the the thing is that with blockchain applications, that's not the case. Uh, uh, data w- when you uh, write a properly optimized blockchain application. Uh, in something like Ethereum that has smart contracts and where you can write yeah. actual programming logic that's enforced by the blockchain, um, you um, uh, uh, the the data uh, the way that the data is structured on the blockchain uh, the 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 top priority for for the the structure of that data is uh, efficient validation by uh, nodes inside mm-hmm. of the network. Yep. It, it's not uh, structured in a way to make uh, application developers' lives easy. So, mm-hmm. so what what you end up doing in in a, a DAP is your client application will have to fire off, you know, maybe fifty, hundred different queries to the blockchain mm-hmm. that that hit different parts of it. Uh, there's these these uh, these log structures that you have to yep. hit, and then there's also client local state that that's within smart contracts, and you have to aggregate that all asynchronously in parallel. And then uh, uh, gather it and turn it into a uh, 
a meaningful data structure. And you have to do that in a way uh, that's as performant as possible. And you have to do that inside the browser. Mm -hmm. um, and that's uh, so that's uh, where uh, core async and, and uh, closure are your best friends. Because mm -hmm. um, with, with, with core async, uh, it's very easy to fire off multiple requests to, to in parallel and, and to, 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 to have very clean bookkeeping in terms of yeah. as the results come in that you properly assemble a, a massaged piece of data that you can push into the UI part of your code. Yeah. And, uh, and, and of course, you can still do all of this with JavaScript. You can use promises, but uh, it, it'll turn very ugly very quickly. And, 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 and having a proper channel uh, system with Go blocks yeah. and having um, uh, closure is a big benefit there. And of course, this ties in directly to QLKit, right? Because yeah. um, what we want to be able to do in the UI is just say, uh, you know, a, a UI component should just say, I don't care what the blockchain looks like. Here's what I need. Uh, somebody else needs to figure out how that ma maps onto resources on the blockchain. Yeah. And then and then the parsers um, uh, will uh, uh, figure out how to, to break uh, those requests down into blockchain operations. And, okay. and, and this goes beyond QLKit because you need uh, you need to have parsers that are uh, that that are wrapped inside of core async operations. So mm -hmm. that's something we're going to release in the near future, so that you can actually essentially do. Uh, 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 I mean, you know, this is not not the totally the right term, but you can basically do multi-threaded um, okay. parsers inside the browser because core async gives you something like a fake uh, multi-threaded programming environment. Which JavaScript doesn't so soon have. we'll have a um, um, good library to deal with uh, blockchain enclosure then. But th there are there are other other initiatives like like Status and uh, District Zero X or something. Mm -hmm. um, who, the, the guys are using Closure. Those uh, folks are using Closure, mm -hmm. and they are building um, DApps, uh, especially Status people. They're building DApps uh, on top of Ethereum blockchain, right? So yes. Uh, no, I have I haven't had any chance to dig into their code base. Okay. Uh, the, the, I mean, there's so much stuff going on right now in the <laughs> um, uh, the blockchain world, and and you know, I know I know some folks at uh, Status very well. Um, uh, you know, there's there's only a small sort of closure community in this space. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm not sure exactly what they're doing. Uh, uh, <laughs> I haven't had time to dig yeah. into that, but uh, we're, okay. we're definitely hoping to release a blockchain toolkit for yeah. uh, closure. And QR kit. That's good because uh, I'm actually working on a blockchain startup as well, so we'll have to we'll have to chat afterwards. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so yeah. off screen, we're going to talk about whether to sell Ethereum or not. Hmm. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, and and so at this point, I, I just <laughs> want to touch on one thing, which is yeah. that um, you know I think a, a lot of people that are kind of in on this call are uh, functional programming geeks and stuff, and are wondering, hmm, you know, is it worth kind of getting into the whole blockchain thing? Yeah, and. Uh, uh, and so, uh, so just one one thing that um, is uh, uh, having been in the community for a while, it's clear that um, the the blockchain community is is kind of dysfunctional at the moment, and the the reason <laughs> the, for that is that um, uh, uh, you know it, it, obviously the the main reason is, is is because it has to do with money, right? Of and, course. Um, uh, the what it, what has happened is. Um, you know the reason I found uh, back in 2011. Uh, you know I've been kind of in, in this for a while. Back in 2011, when I got into Bitcoin, what mm -hmm. what really appealed, uh, uh, what I found appealing about it, is that uh, uh, I'm trying to remember what the name is of that um, 
the, the bank robber with the famous quote. Uh, I can't think of his name now. But, but they asked him. Uh, no, no, no. But they it's this old uh, uh, quote from this bank robber. But they asked him why he robbed banks. And his answer was because that's where the money oh, is, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> and so, so me as an enterprise employee for a long time, um, uh, I always kind of felt like uh, large uh, companies uh, undervalue their tech talent and place more value into like sales departments and into the sort of the management layer. Mm. And uh, and I think part of the reason why that was historically is that um, those people were more able to clearly show an ROI for their uh, for their employment. Uh, so uh, uh, so that uh, whereas in the tech world, we were always kind of on the very opposite side of the part of the business that brings in money. Mm -hmm. And so it was very hard to, to make a case for your value in an organization. So 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 to me, like this cryptocurrency stuff, what, what uh, at some level made it really exciting is that th this is programmers that directly interact with money. Uh, yeah. at, at a fundamental level, and and now we uh, we techies can 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 have our uh, mon, mon, uh, you know our hands on the money strings, and uh, <laughs> we own money, uh, and so that's <laughs> so so that's that that I found that really exciting. Uh, but now, of course, the problem is that if you take look at something like the programming language communities, I mean, we certainly have a lot of uh, flame wars and you know arguments about static versus dynamic typing and stuff. But at the end of the day. Oh yeah, uh, somebody just said the the bank robber was Willie Sutton. Yeah, that's one of our um, Martin. He said uh, Willie Sutton from yeah, Livestream. Yeah, yes, that, that was him. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so we okay. have the money as programmers. Yeah. So so we have the money. Um, uh, but but part of the problem is now that um, uh, if you look at the programming language community, if I'm having an argument with somebody who who thinks static typing or Haskell is better than Lisp or whatever, at the end of the day, we both know that the reason we're having this argument. Is, is that for the most uh, part, everybody has good intentions and we want to actually figure out like what's the best answer, what is the better language, right? Yeah. So there's a certain limit as to how ugly things can get. Whereas uh, in the in the uh, crypto community, especially with Bitcoin, uh, 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 things have gotten kind of, things get really ugly. Yeah. Um, and it and again, it's it's the fact that, that there's money involved and, um, uh, and, and if, if you as a closure developer, if you, if you go, uh, for the first time, and you start reading these white papers that people are putting out in the crypto community, you'll see very quickly that uh, some staggering amount of the the uh, projects that are coming out and that have uh, what look like serious people backing them with a budget, yeah. uh, like something like ninety nine percent of them are just fundamentally bad ideas, and at a mm. technical level, just wouldn't work. Um, uh, so, and you know, may, maybe it's not quite that high. Maybe I, there are some ideas in there where I don't see the value, but I'm just amazed at how crappy, uh, the work coming out of the crypto community is right now from a technical level. Yeah. And the reason, uh, for that is, uh, that, that, uh, uh mon money is making it hard for people to figure out what's good and what's bad, mm -hmm. uh, because the, it, it prevents the, the, the quality work from rising to the top because, uh, uh, people will shout out the good work, and so there's a yeah. large noise uh, to, to quality ratio there. Yeah. Um, and also, the the other problem is is that uh, it, it was very random. That, like, there's people that made enormous amounts of money in the crypto world, mm. and and the the people that made that money was ma made in a very sort of random haphazard way. So so I really wonder at some of these uh, these large blockchain businesses like Consensus. It yeah. must be weird because there, there must be like two programmers sitting next to each other where one <laughs> of them is a hundredfold millionaire 
and the other one, <laughs> know you know, doesn't have enough for lunch. Like, how do you run a company that way? I've, I have yeah. no idea. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and that again, adds so much distortion. Yeah. Now, of course, I, I think the, the answer. So, so anyway, uh, so the reason I bring that up is just that, that people, I, I think a lot of people from the programming language world, um, uh, are going to, uh, you know, might get a bit turned off by that. And, and I'm just saying, yeah, unfortunately <laughs> this is true. And what we, all we can hope is that, um, that market forces eventually start coming into play mm. and that there will be more accountability that uh, your product has to actually do something useful yeah. and that people that can pr produce good work uh, start being promoted. Uh, but right now that's just not the case. It's a, it's yeah. a wild west and, and it's hard to figure out what, what is good and what is bad. But it is it is interesting because you know um, yeah in in the beginning of the show we were discussing that you know to 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 make the ideas like complex ideas accessible to people, and then that that reminded me of you know the you know the crypto kitties on Ethereum blockchain, mm -hmm. you know, that, that that sounded like a completely stupid idea. But then their paper all talks about like oh we're gonna bring in blockchain to people and you know to to make people understand blockchain. But what do you think of crypto kitty? Should I buy crypto kitty now or? <laughs> Well, I don't know. I think it's a great project. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, now, the, the the problem, of course, with it is, is that um, it's essentially just like another type of money, right? And uh, it's very similar to money. Like people have been trying to make a successful Ethereum game for a long time, including mm. myself, but I never released anything because it yeah. was never good enough. Mm. Um, and uh, um, the, uh, you know, and, and anything that's successful in crypto is basically just new types of money. So there's, you know, there's Bitcoin was successful, ICOs. So the yeah. reason Ethereum yeah. is worth a lot is because people make ICOs on Ethereum, but ICOs yeah. are just like another form of private money. And yeah. then uh, CryptoKitties is another form of money. <laughs> um, so so there, there are yeah. there like no other than like the idea of using a blockchain for money, no mm -hmm. other idea so far has been successful. Even mm -hmm. though I personally believe the, the applicability of this technology is very wide ranging. Yes, yeah. um, uh, uh, it's, I mean, it's kind of, in a way, kind of an embarrassment at how little uh, utility these systems have after all this time, and mm. uh, and and that that again is making it uh, is is uh, it causing a lot of dysfunction, I think, mm. in the blockchain community, and it's part of the reason I think also why there isn't like a lot of diversity, like there's no women or you know that kind mm, of yeah. stuff, uh, which yeah. I mean, all tech sectors kind of have those kinds of problems, but I think in crypto it's particularly marked. Yeah, I was going to say the other the other thing that um, that I see happening as well is that is that people say, yeah, crypto, the whole blockchain thing is too hard. Um, you know, it doesn't. It's not offering value. I saw this presentation by a guy, ex CouchDB guy, who's made this thing called FaunaDB, and what he's done is he said, okay, well, what we want from the blockchain is a distributed ledger. Um, so, actually. Why do we need the blockchain? It's pretty horrible. So let's just write um, a, a distributed ledger system using Amazon Lambdas. So I, I think he's a, I think he's way, way, way off because he's missing the point of the blockchain, which is this, this, this nature of the of the of the cryptography and the public nature of the data, um, and the fact that you can verify things and trust things. These, these are much more important than using Lambdas to store shit. You know, that seems like a, again, there's a sort of, people don't get it yet, I think. I think there's a kind of, the penny hasn't dropped. Certainly from the external perspective, it's just about making money. Oh, these big cryptocurrencies, shall I, shall I invest or shan't I invest? I think that's a really stupid question. 
the really better question is what is what is this thing how should it work what are the benefits of this thing and i think you've you've put it much better which is that really what we're interested in is the is the security and the cryptography and the verifiability around this thing that those are the key like value propositions if you like of the blockchain and all this other stuff is just bullshit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's very tempting to say, hey, uh, this blockchain is cool. Let's just stick it in our data center behind a firewall and we'll just stick the same private data on it as we always have and uh, and we'll call it a blockchain and that, that somehow uh, will, will be better than, than existing technology. Um, and I, th I think there are use cases for private blockchains, um, but, uh, but, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really strange, right? I mean, I think us in the functional community, functional programming community kind of understand this because like we've had conversations with people that are not into functional programming and it's really hard. There's very smart people yeah. that you can talk to and you can try to tell them why they should use functional programming. And it's hard to make a good argument for it. It's just like, like you either get it or you don't. Yeah. And, uh, uh, and, and, and you can be very smart and think that functional programming is just a, a giant waste of time. And, and that's the same thing around the public uh, aspects of blockchain and the the validation aspects of blockchain mm -hmm. like that to me is is where the story lies and uh, and and um, but you can't you can't really articulate a good reason for that uh, what you either either people get it or if they don't get it they'll get it three or four years from mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. once the technology has shaken out and they'll see that all, all successful products uh, in this space will use that aspect of it. Yeah, yeah. Assuming that that ends, that the world ends ends up that way. So before we uh, get into that one, I, I want to take a couple of questions that that we had on Twitter as well. So yeah. uh, uh, someone asked about um, Geraldo uh, Lopez Souza. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. I apologize if I didn't. Um, so he says, "How to mitigate the complexity of multi methods to resolve queries on QL Kit? What is the best approach to testing?" Yeah. So um, uh, so around complexity of query. So 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 this is kind of the cost of any kind of graph query system is the idea mm -hmm. is that you have to actually parse these you're creating these queries and then the next thing you do is you have to parse them. And it's yeah. like why the heck do do I uh, do I go through all this trouble, right? And uh, mm -hmm. so uh, so first of all, you don't have to use multi methods with uh, uh, QL kit. You can use regular functions. You can just define a function for, you yeah. know, that handles reads or mutates and then it will get the um, uh, the uh, as a you know it'll get the query as a parameter and you can do what you need to do so you don't have to use multi methods mm. um, and then of course there's there's helper functions that handle the uh, recursive aspect you know where like you have a query that has you know you have a you have a, a, a providers uh, list query and then that has individual provider items in it and then each provider has a name so you can uh, see so there, there's helper functions that let you handle that recursive side of things, which is really the most complicated mm. um, part of it. Uh, so I mean, I guess I guess that's. But at the end of the day, yeah, I mean the the whole idea here is that uh, unlike other frameworks, you're going to have to do a lot more work around parsing of queries, um, yeah. and and the, the the idea is that that will give you more benefits in other uh, parts of your application. Uh, and then the second yeah. part of the question, um, what was it again? Uh, what is the best approach to testing in QLK? Yeah, so so uh, I think the testing story around uh, these types of systems is really good. So so there's kind of two things you want to test. One is um, the the whole parsing. Like uh, if I send a query, will I get the right result? Now um, 
uh, uh, QL kit makes a simplification. Uh, it maintains some global state that's used in the parsing process yeah. because well, your parsers are just essentially taking data and then passing it off to children. And uh, and that starts getting tiresome. There's a lot of bookkeeping where you're kind of moving data around. So what we did is um, both in the browser and in the server side, there's a mount command where you can just say, here's everything about that we want to do. And then the parsers have access to that. And so for certain sort of global things like yeah. uh, you know what 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 where where does the state live uh, for the global state like you don't have to pass the state in which is different from Omnex. Mm -hmm. uh, well, Omnex uh, uses an, an environment system, so it mm -hmm. kind of has a middle ground there. Um, but uh, 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 so the the um, shoot, what was the question again? <laughs> testing. testing. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, testing. So anyway, so yeah. so uh, so the way you you test and you can see this in the QL kit tests that we have is you just mm -hmm. uh, in a test you just mount. Uh, a piece of data uh, uh, in the state, uh, and then you you can run a bunch of queries and see mm. if they get the right answer, and then okay. and then that's it. And then in your next test, you can mount something else. So that so there is a stateful component there. Uh, yeah. The queries don't you don't just pass into the queries everything that they need. You have to first mount something that kind of initializes the parsing system, and then yeah. uh, uh, you can run queries against that. Uh, and then the uh, uh, the other thing you want to test is the UI. Mm. And um, so the way React and the way um, Omnex work is uh, that the render function returns a bunch of uh, uh, React, nested React uh, components. Uh, and they have some weird uh, system where they do that in a really light way with uh, special yeah. constructors and stuff in JavaScript. Uh, so that's kind of hard to test because it might be nice to write a test where you say, um, if this component gets this data, what uh, what will it look like? Mm -hmm. um, so so uh, with QLKit, uh, we actually output essentially uh, what is you would either call Sublono or Hiccup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we just return an Eden data structure as the render result, and so so now it's easier to write a test where you just say uh, you know uh, this this is the Eden that should come out of this component when when it gets this state and this uh, this other these other properties and so it's more of a functional transform yeah mm. so it's more like that um, now with with the limitation that you still um, that event handlers it's really hard to not return a function to handle an event in a uh, when you're when you're rendering so mm. so so if you do uh, unit testing you would just have to uh, like skip uh, when you compare data structures you'll have to skip over the the event function uh, yeah. because that um, uh, you know, it's kind of impenetrable at render time to uh, mm. test. You know, what would happen after the rendering when somebody clicks on mm -hmm. this button or whatever. Mm. So anyway. So the other, uh, I think probably one of the last questions that uh, somebody from the YouTube stream is asking. Um, so because the Bitcoin has this inefficiency, you know, with all the energy uh, for uh, uh, using a lot of energy, etc. So the question is, uh, is this a less of a problem for uh, smart contracts like the medical licenses that, that you just explained, like the usage of energy and then uh, the, the cost and efficiency? Yeah, so the the cost, the, the uh, yeah. So this is one of the, the, the largest um, uh, flame wars in the cryptocurrency <laughs> world is whether, so there's two ways of maintaining consensus on a blockchain, essentially. One is called proof of work and one is called proof of stake. Mm -hmm. And uh, Bitcoin uses proof of work and it requires basically uh, running 
uh, uh, Bitcoin, you know, requires more energy than like the the country of Ireland or something yeah, yeah. crazy like that. Yeah. Um, so, and and in fact, uh, I think that Ethereum requires even more, which which is people don't realize <laughs> because um, uh, there's actually more computing power uh, being put towards Ethereum than towards Bitcoin mm. because the mining rewards, uh, uh, the the absolute amount of money paid to miners in Ethereum right now is actually higher than Bitcoin uh, yeah. because of how it's designed. They they ended up just handing out more money to miners. But anyway, uh, so both of them have this problem. Mm -hmm. um, but there is this thing called proof of stake. And uh, and and I'm in the camp where I believe that that it's like uh, going to be a piece of cake to uh, move over to piece of, uh, proof, proof of, of stake. stake. Yeah. And proof of stake basically doesn't have any uh, sort of uh, energy efficiency, uh, okay. you know, other than just a traditional data center would where you just have to, you okay. know, you, you, need, you need servers to, to talk to. But it doesn't have to like burn, uh, do complex calculations or anything, and burn electricity mm -hmm. the way proof of work does. And the problem is, is, is that for the people that say proof of stake is a bad idea, uh, the only way to really prove them wrong is to get empirical data, yeah. and so that will take time. Okay. Um, the bigger, the bigger thing. I mean, the big, the big issue in 2018 for blockchain is scalability. Yeah. Um, how do we um, let people create transactions and move money around and call smart contracts? Mm. Uh, in a way that's cheaper, uh, uh, where they can do it with uh, without uh, paying high network fees, mm. and that's a, a really difficult problem. Um, and um, uh, you know, uh, since we are able to kind of have some uh, forward-looking approach at our company, uh, we are uh, trying. We, we are working on some stuff in that direction. Um, cool. But 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 it's technically uh, very difficult. So the the. The likelihood of success is, uh, you know, you have to keep that in yeah. mind that, that we'll be able to come up. Obviously, with. I don't, I don't want to, you know, uh, we, we don't want to get into this this blockchain too much and then make this mm -hmm. podcast about blockchain. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll start. A, we'll, we'll probably go into all sorts of directions. So, yeah. I think one final question: Emacs or some other crap? Uh, definitely Emacs. Okay, mm -hmm. I think I think you win. Obviously, <laughs> you, know, you win the internet now. <laughs> I think it's been blow by blow for Ray now. Every <laughs> these days, every guest that comes on, they say Emacs, and then Ray is like, "Oh my God, my life is yeah, well, I, meaningless." I, I now. think it's like it's like a <laughs> random number system. You know, there's you get a lot of you get a lot of fives. You know, but <laughs> we'll get a six eventually. I fear exactly. Yeah. yeah, I think uh, we. I oh, we're almost uh, one and a half hour. Um, maybe we should just uh, uh, close down the, the, the or at least you know close the recording by uh, uh, you you've been remembering the um, uh, stuff for um, sorry not remembering somebody type remember I'm just typing I'm just saying what they say um, you just posted something about the animation stuff uh, so a quick uh, overview of that one what you what are you trying to do there it's like a generation animation. Uh, so, so the the basic idea is, I mean, you know, we kind of have to look at what are like the big, exciting problems in the world. And I think the exciting, the most exciting thing in computer science really is machine learning and blockchain tech right now. Yeah. Um. But uh. But I I just find it fascinating how um you know how important it is to be able to communicate with people. You know, as I tried to do with my books, and uh and it's clear that like Hollywood is essentially slowly turning into a giant animation studio, mm. and um. <laughs> And so animation is really interesting in that it, it's actually kind of important. Like, you know, like pr there will probably be the day where like, you know, 5% of the world population is animators because like these are like the last jobs that uh, everyone's going to be doing is, yeah. you know, fe feeding feeding the machine learning systems and doing uh, animation and stuff. Mm -hmm. and, uh, uh, and 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 it seems to me that the, the technology um, 
in, in for like the animation tools uh, that, that there's like a lot of room for improvement there. And and I'm no expert um, uh, by any means, but um, but but I, I've I've used you know Blender and uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, what is it called uh, Toon Boom and those kinds of things, and and they all just feel like you're being thrown into the uh, into the cockpit of an airplane when you first fire them up. There's just a million dialog boxes, and it's impossible to see how everything fits together. And uh, um, and 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 I think what it really comes down to is uh, so where where I think these yeah I mean I just I see several different places where this could be optimized, and I've been working on my own mm -hmm. development framework. And if you yeah. go on uh, uh, to forwardblockchain.com, there's a video there for our company, and all the animation there I actually built myself using my own animation tools from scratch. Ah, um, okay. And uh, uh, and and the basic idea behind it is is uh, you know we we want to apply functional programming to animation, which means that mm -hmm. instead of building up these very uh, brittle sort of uh, scene descriptions mm. that are all, uh, you know, where you like this build this big tree of like what are all the objects and, you know, how, when does this arm move there and when does that happen there? And everything is really brittle mm. because it's, uh, um, you, you just build it once and then if somebody wants to change, you like have to throw away a big piece of it mm. because um, it's all very, there, there, there's a lot of dependencies that make it hard to sort of disentangle things after the fact. And so this is a typical example where we want to use the functional programming style to it so that we can have composability mm. of the different parts. And um, uh, uh, and, and so the, but but the problem, yeah, and, and so the, the core problem in general with animation, I think, is that that, that uh, on the one hand, you, uh, you want to be able to tell a story uh, and you want to think in, in, in sort of on a, in a human way about animation, which to me basically means you think in terms of a storyboard. You know, yeah, uh, yeah. this person walks into the room, then uh, they talk to that person, then they hand them this object, and that's kind of how a human would describe a story. Uh, but but uh, of course, if if you want to take animation to its most primitive form, the most primitive form of animation would be something like a, a raw physics engine, yeah, where you yeah. just uh, you know you simulate molecules yeah. bouncing around. And uh, and it's a very different way of of uh, you know uh, uh, that mecha me mechanistic way of thinking about the world is very incompatible with the way humans tell stories. Mm. And so a lot of these animation tools are fighting that uh, that divide. So mm. so like if you you know so if you if you if in an animation program if if you take an object and they and you know like a ball and one person throws it to another, what you do is you use something like a motion path and you use things like easing and then. But then the animator, they have to do a lot of work because then when the other guy catches the ball, you know, they, they'll learn, oh, well, they can't just catch the ball. You know, the ball has to have weight. And so and then, then they learn that Springs, you know, the, the motion yeah. path has to go down and the person yeah. has to struggle to, yeah, to, yeah. to catch the ball and all that. And uh, and it seems like um, uh, uh, I, I think that there, there, there could be something interesting where you you build a tool mm -hmm. where you you basically describe in a domain specific language in something like Eden mm -hmm. what the, the different scenes are, mm -hmm. and then you um, uh, uh, and then you 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 uh, uh, can uh, attach to it um, uh, physics properties to, yeah. to the objects and things, and then uh, kind of have a an algorithm that kind of reconciles the two, so that it reconciles the physics with. The, the storytelling so so you know so so if, if they have to throw a ball it yeah. figures out how far they they are apart and how how high like you would throw a ball in that case and if it guesses it wrong then somebody can adjust it mm -hmm. um, but but it, but it, but it, actually the the way I'm building it is I'm I'm basing it on a library called React Motion okay. which is a uh, yeah, uh, which yeah. is Animation a library 
that uh, an animation library for React. Uh, and it's interesting uh, because it uses Spring animation for letting you uh, have animation in your React app. Mm. And uh, and the amount of time it will take for an object to move from one place to another in React motion changes depending on how far the places are that it has to move. So mm. so so usually when we think of like uh, doing animation in a website, we say, okay, you know, I'm going to give two seconds for this when when the person drags this over here. It's going to take two seconds for to go over there. Yeah. But React motion says no 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 no. Uh, we have to take the physics into account, mm. and and so in, in in React Motion, you just say, well, I want the object to be here, and then the library figures out how to get it there in the most natural, pleasing way, mm. and uh, and so so yeah, so the the framework I'm doing it actually looks like React programming. Uh, you have a render function, uh, but then you have another function for uh, describing the the physical properties of the components in the animation, and then okay. you have another function where you can tell. Where you can build out the storyboard for each component as it changes over time. So that's kind of roughly what I'm doing. And I, okay. I just posted on uh, 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 a quick um, a demo app that kind of shows how uh, you would animate a ball using these kinds of ideas. Yeah, I think we'll we'll post the link on uh, on the notes of the show. Mm. Um, I think we uh, came almost to the conclusion of uh, today's thing. Uh, just a couple of um, announcement I want to make. Uh, one is that uh, we have Dutch Closure Day coming up in April on April twenty first Saturday in Amsterdam. So you're you're welcome to join if you want to come to uh, Amsterdam on a nice uh, weather. Uh, it's going to be a lot of tulips around, so it'll be lovely to have you there. I don't know if you're if you ever been to Amsterdam, so consider this as a formal invitation from us. <laughs> well, thanks. It's it's tough. It's <laughs> tough with a family to to travel uh, like that. So. Yeah. I think you should bring everybody. That's, that's, uh, that's the whole when, idea. When is it again? <laughs> you should bring everyone. <laughs> when is it again? Uh, I think it's it's April twenty first. Uh, okay, Saturday. yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it'll be tough. School time. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so the call for proposals is still open. I'm not sure by the time this, we release the episode if it will be open. Probably because uh, we're gonna end the um, CFP on uh, end of February. Um, and um, it's going to be an amazing uh, day again. This is the third time we're organizing. And next week, uh, Ray and I, and also Wouter, our um, maestro behind the scenes who fixes all our sounding issues, uh, is also going to be there at, in Germany, in Berlin. Uh, so I'll be speaking there um, about Onyx, and uh, Ray will be uh, offending everybody there with his deaf jokes. Uh, so if you're around, uh, please uh, stop by and say hi. Um, once again, uh, Conrad, thanks a lot for joining us. And uh, you know, there's been there are a lot of topics that we discussed. You know, you're, you're doing this uh, blockchain stuff, animation, QL kit, medicine, <laughs> and writing books and stuff. And there, there is still a lot of a uh, lot lot of things to talk about. So we'd love to have you uh, yeah, back on the show. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd uh, be happy to come back sometime. That'd be brilliant. perfect. Uh, that's it from us. Um, I think uh, you'll see this episode uh, on the, um, well, uh, we've been live streaming it, so we will try to do this uh, every episode as well. Uh, and uh, for the folks uh, who want to see these videos later, uh, we only restrict it to the people who, uh, you know, pay us with the money, real money. <laughs> so we have Patreon, that's, that's the idea. So if you think uh, we're doing some useful job, uh, go ahead and then uh, uh, click us and then show us your support. And the people who are, who are supporting us, we are very grateful. And uh, that's it from us uh, on this uh, uh, nice springy Sunday from Holland. Goodbye. Goodbye. Yeah, yeah great, great to meet you guys. It was a lot of fun. Bye-bye.
So it's a, I think it's a kind of dating application as well, you know. So we don't want to get involved in that. 